You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. All right, Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, a crown was given to him, and he went out as a conqueror in order to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse went out, a fiery red one, and its rider was allowed to take peace from the earth, so that people would slaughter one another, and a large sword was given to him. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there was a black horse. Its rider held a set of scales in his hand. Then I heard something like a voice among the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following after him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by wild animals of the earth. The fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar and souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? So they were each given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. Then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? 
After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth, so that no wind could blow on the earth, or on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel rising up from the east, who had the seal of the living God. He cried out in a loud voice to the four angels, who were allowed to harm the earth and the sea. Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites, 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Benjamin. After this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and along with the elders and the four living creatures, they, they fell face down before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, Bless, blessings and glory to glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and strength to be our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, who are these people in white robes and where did they come from? I said to him, sir, you know. Then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an, half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand in the presence of God. Seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel with a golden incense burner came and stood at the altar. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up in the presence of God from the angel's hand. The angel took the incense burner, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. 
there were pearls of thunder, rumbling, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Thank you, guys. All right, so we're doing this over 15 weeks, three lots of five uh, passages, and uh, we're just getting into now the second lot of five passages. So we've, we've done five weeks up to this point, and uh, if you want to catch up on those, you can go to our website, and it's all there on uh, audio and video. Um, and uh, I just want to recap very quickly where we've been, just a, a sentence on each week so far. And so, uh, so in the first sermon, you might remember that we talked about sort of the context for the book as it was written in the first century, probably the late 90s AD. It's a, it's a book written to real Christians in Asia Minor, modern Turkey, real Christians about real life in order to encourage them to persevere in faith and reassure them that in the end, God wins. It's the kind of thing you say to persecuted Christians like these brothers and sisters were in Turkey in the first century. Uh, persecuted under a tyrannical Roman Empire and uh, whose lives were under threat day and night. So the book is designed to encourage them to stay faithful even unto death. The second week we looked at the fact that um, the world is uncertain. Um, We are incredibly rare. Our experience of life is incredibly rare. The level of security we have Um, in contrast to most of the people who have ever lived and certainly most of our brothers and sisters around the world. And so the book which makes probably more sense to those who are living under persecution than it does to us um, are reassured that though there are dark forces in the world and there are those who have dangerous agendas um, that Jesus Christ is supreme Lord. He is more powerful than the most powerful dark force in the universe. Always has been, always will be, and he both loves and leads us in the midst of the the tribulation that we live through right now. So sermon number three, Jesus is both the saviour who dies for our sins and the Lord who commands obedience. Remember he said this over and over to the churches. He wants churches who are like him, that is, full of grace and truth, full of mercy and purity. Uh, We can't have one without the other. Sermon 4, John's vision of the heavenly throne room. You remember this? It's a picture of God's absolute sovereignty over all things. And because he is sovereign, he is also worthy of our worship, worthy of our adoration, worthy of every day making all of life all about Jesus. And the last week before we took a break, we saw that the only one worthy to open God's scroll, his, his will for the whole earth, the only one worthy to open it and therefore to execute it is the lamb that was slain, Jesus himself. And so he begins to enact God's will for for the earth, for the universe, for eternity. And that's where we pick up the story today. As the seals of the scroll are opened, they reveal to us God's will 
for the earth. Ultimately, it's his will to bring heaven to earth, really to answer Jesus' prayer that he instructed us to pray, that God's kingdom would come, God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the rest of the story of the book of Revelation. And that's God's will that we'll see played out. Now, it does get pretty dark and it does get pretty weird, frankly, over the next, well, most of the rest of the book, really. Uh, Inside the scroll, we're going to see there are three sets of seven judgments. Three sets of seven judgments. You have three sets of seven seals. Then next week, we're going to look at three sets of seven trumpets. And then later on, three sets of seven bowls. And each of them contain judgments on the earth of God's righteous wrath and justice. And, uh, and we're going to see it's not like... Um, it's not like a timeline that's rolled out, like a, a, a sequence of things that are going to happen in the future. The, um, the, the sequence of things is actually kind of jumbled up even with each set of seven. So we're going to see today the sixth seal shows us the end of the world, and then the seventh seal we're back in before that time. So don't, don't try and lay this out along history and try and figure out which thing means which event. It doesn't work like that. Within the seventh of each of these sets of three, um, so you get to the seventh seal, and it contains the group of seven trumpets. And then you get to the seventh trumpet, and it contains the group of seven bowls. So they're kind of like those um, nesting dolls, Russian dolls. kind of works a little bit like that. But um, the purpose of going through this in detail is so that we might get a little bit better idea of what it is that God's trying to tell us. Remember, this, the genre of writing here, apocalyptic genre, is just something we are not at all f- familiar with. It hasn't been written for 1,800 years. Nobody learns how to read this in school, and so we're all learning here. We're all trying to figure it out together, and God, by his Spirit, promises to give clarity as we humbly uh, come to his word and open it together. So, all that being said... Let's uh, jump into these seals. We, can't, we don't have enough time to go through everything verse by verse, but um, the first four seals are all piled into the beginning of chapter 6. So 6, 1 to 8, you get these four seals kind of um, thrown all in together. And uh, it's the, the image we're given is of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as they're known in kind of popular culture, you know, movies use this imagery from time to time, books as well, and uh, it's kind of in the public consciousness to a degree, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, I think probably in the, the world in general, in the, the culture in general, and, and according to some Christian traditions, the four horsemen are kind of seen as baddies, um, but it's actually clear from the, the from the book of Revelation and from other texts where they appear in the scriptures that these, these creatures, these four horsemen, are actually servants of God to the degree that they are doing his will. Yes, they, they do bring all kinds of horrible events like famine and war and plague and wild beasts, but they are doing it in accordance with God's will. He is using them to execute his judgment on the earth. So they're not baddies, they're instruments. 
You see this in, in Zechariah chapter one. This is, again, you know, we've said before, the book of Revelation is just full, like replete, like jam-packed with Old Testament language. And we might not get it in the way that John's first hearers would have got. So let me just help us to see from Zechariah chapter one. You can find this in chapter six of the same book as well. Similar kind of genre of writing. And this is what it says. I looked out in the night and saw a man riding on a chestnut horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the valley. Behind him were chestnut brown and white horses. I asked, what are these, my Lord? The angel who was talking to me replied, I will show you what they are. It's revelation. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, they are the ones the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. He goes on. They reported to the angel of the Lord standing among the myrtle trees, we have patrolled the earth, and right now the whole earth is calm and quiet. Then the angel of the Lord responded, how long, Lord of armies, will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and the cities of Judah that you have been angry with these 70 years? The Lord replied with kind and comforting words to the angel who was speaking with me. These horsemen whose purpose it is to patrol the earth for God. In the context of Zechariah, God's people are being harassed. They're being persecuted by the nations around them. And they feel like, what is God doing in the midst of all this? We're meant to be his chosen people. We're meant to be like a, a son or a daughter of his. And, and you know, we're meant to have this good father who protects us and brings justice judges our enemies and the angel himself when he hears the report of these horsemen that everything's fine don't worry about it he's angry he's frustrated how long is God going to send these horsemen out and then withhold judgment from evil people I want you just to remember have in your mind that passage as we come to the fifth seal. So chapter six, verse nine to 10. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? That sound familiar? So God has these instruments of his judgment, the horsemen who have been given authority to do violence on the earth, to bring God's judgment on an unrepentant, wicked population. And the people who are under the altar, the souls, that is the disembodied uh, people who have been slaughtered, waiting for the great day of resurrection when they will receive new bodies. Waiting and waiting and waiting, are crying out to God like the angel did in Zechariah 1. How long? How long are you going to withhold these instruments of your judgment, these horsemen who are meant to go and do justice? How long are you going to hold them back? How long are we, will we have to wait for our blood to be avenged? These people who have slaughtered us are getting away with it. 
this, those two verses, just mark that if, if, in your Bible, verse 9 and 10. They're kind of interpretive key verses for the whole book. The rest of the book, really, is going to give God's rationale for acting in response to the prayers of those who have been slaughtered. Those who have died because of the word of God, <clears throat> the testimony the, the witness, the, the, the Greek word for witness or testimony is martyr. And that's where we have, where we've got this word for those who have died because they believed. Those who have been put to death because they honored, followed, worshipped the Lamb. Their question to God, their prayer which goes up to God like incense from the altar, their, their plea is for justice to be done on the earth, for God to, to act out of his nature, to put things right, to bring vengeance. And the rest of the book is God's response to those prayers. That's where all of this judgment is coming from. But first, the martyrs are going to have to wait. Verse 11, they were told, or sorry, they were each given a white robe and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. At our last kingdom prayer meeting, it's the, we have it on the last Monday of the month, and uh, in the evening here at church, and at our last one, we were focusing on the persecuted church, and we were praying for persecuted Christians around the world, and we uh, grabbed a bunch of resources from an organization called Open Doors, and uh, they monitor persecuted Christians around the world and do a great deal of research into the plight of persecuted peoples. And at that meeting we had this map. I've got it here. You want to pull that up, guys? This is a map of the top 50 countries in the world where Christians are persecuted. It's called the World Watch List. They update it every year. You can find it online and you can use it as fuel for your prayers. North Korea returned to the number one spot uh, recently and the alarming thing is that this, the, the map, uh, the coverage of the map keeps growing. Christians are just as persecuted today as they ever have been, if not more. Open Doors says that 360 million Christians around the world are persecuted for their faith. So that's like 14 times the population of Australia. If you can imagine our country 14 times over filled with persecuted Christians, people who are actively opposed because of their faith in the Lord Jesus. We like to think, I, I think, that we have come such a long way and we're such enlightened people that today there is just such religious tolerance around the world, but it's simply not the case. And in some places it's getting worse and worse and worse. What is a persecuted Christian? This is from their website. They give a little uh, definition here. Um, persecution 
is any form of hostility experienced as a result of following Jesus. This can look different for the hundreds of millions of believers who face persecution every day. For some, it's a denial of basic needs like clean water, food and health care because of their faith in Jesus. Or rejection from their non-Christian family and community. For others, Christian persecution is acts of physical violence, imprisonment, or even death. And those souls under the altar crying out to God for vengeance, for justice, their number is being added to. From that time forward, like from when Stephen is the first martyr there in, in, in paradise, under the altar, crying out to God for justice, from that point until now, I'm guessing hundreds of millions of souls have been added to that number. Open Doors says in 2022, I think the number is 5,898 believers were killed and added to the number. The martyrs must wait until the number would be completed of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. Which leads us to the sixth seal. And again, this is not sequential, right? We're jumping forward now to the day of the Lord. The great and terrible day of the Lord, the judgment day, the end of the world as we know it. So verse 12 to 17 of chapter 6. Then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Then the kings of the earth the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb because the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Who is able to stand? That is one of the key questions that the Bible asks over and over and over again. Who can stand before a holy God and live? The answer is no one. Only a perfect person can stand before a perfect God and live. God cannot abide anything less than perfection. And when anything less than perfection comes into contact with the presence of God, it is destroyed. 
And so the question is the perfect one. Who can stand? Who can stand before a holy God? What hope is there for anyone, anything in all creation if eternity is about dwelling with a holy God, then who will ever be able to live eternally with a holy God? Who will be able to survive the great day of the Lord, of his judgment? His judgment comes and he judges against perfection. So who can stand? We're given the answer really quick. Really soon after the question is asked, we're given the answer. The answer is in verse 3. The four angels, probably the four horsemen themselves, they have power to destroy, but they're told, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the servants of our God on their foreheads. So, who will survive the judgment of God? Those who have been sealed. Those who have been secured. Those who serve the God of judgment. Who are the ones that have been sealed? Paul actually talks about this quite a bit in his letters. And he says in Ephesians chapter 1, in him, talking to the church, the redeemed ones, in him, in him, secure in him, sealed in him, we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. So that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. Those who are sealed are those who have been predestined, those who have been uh, chosen, those who have been recipients of grace, those who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, those who have believed. They're the ones who have been sealed. They're the ones who are protected from God's righteous wrath. Those are the ones who can stand. When I was a teenager, we had this uh, friend of the family named uh, Scotsman, named Robert Forsyth. And uh, actually his name was Robert Forsyth. And uh, he was a great man. Um, took me under his wing, could see that I uh, needed some guidance. And so he, he used to pack me off in his car and drive up to the mountains and he taught me how to fly fish. And... Um, that was his great gift to me. And uh, he taught me about how to spend the whole day walking a river and spotting and stalking fish. And he commanded me to never fish like an Englishman sitting on a bank. Uh, and um, 
yeah, he was a great guy. Uh, um, when I went to America, I, um, as a 19-year-old, having sort of passed his apprenticeship, I took my fly rod with me and thought I could do some fly fishing in America, a great place to go fly fishing. And because I was an idiot, I just um, put it in with my checked luggage. And um, by the time I landed in New York, it was in a thousand pieces. And, um, and then when I went back the second time, though, he gave me his fly rod, one that he had had for many, many years. And, um, and when, I, when I took it from him, he gave me a, this tube that he had made out of PC, uh, PVC pipe and then he had wrapped it in leather. It was a beautiful thing. You could zip up and then lock. And so when I landed in New York the second time, it was in perfect order. It had been sealed is the point, right? It had been protected. It had been designed, that the seal had been designed by a, a, a loving designer who's had investment in the thing which was being protected and did everything that needed to be done to keep it safe. That's exactly what's going on here with those who have been sealed. They've been protected. Not protected from suffering, not by any means. Many of them will be destroyed. Not protected from suffering or persecution or poverty or death, but protected from God's own wrath. Protected from his righteous judgment. Kept safe for eternity. Who are these people? John hears who they are in verse Four. He says, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites. And then he sees who are sealed. In verse 9 and 10 of chapter 7, after this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people and language which no one could number standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and palm branches, with palm branches in their hands. So this is exactly like, remember the last sermon we had before this one? John hears about the Lion of Judah and then he sees a lamb that was slain. This is a theme that happens throughout the book. He hears something and so expects to see something, but what he sees is very different from that which he expected. The same is true here. He hears about the 144,000. It's like a military census from the Old Testament. You find similar in Numbers, I think it's in chapter 1, this sort of ranks of Israelites listed out in their numbers. That's what he hears, but when he looks... He sees something very different. He sees not 144,000, but a, a, a multitude that can't be numbered. The reality that he sees is different from that which he heard and therefore expected. And the shock of this, the shock of seeing rather than 144,000 Israelites, to see people of every nation and tribe and tongue 
in numbers that can't be numbered is, is just as shocking as seeing a slaughtered lamb when you expected to see the Lion of Judah. Just imagine John looking at the, like he would be seeing people that he'd never even knew existed. He'd be seeing Asian people. He'd be seeing indigenous Australian people, Native American, like people that they didn't even know existed in the first century in Asia Minor. And he sees them all gathered around the throne, those who have been chosen, saved, secured for eternity. It's a beautiful picture. The question is, are you one of them? Are you one of the multitude from every nation and tribe and people and language? Are you one of the unnumbered people? I think that's what God wants you to ask of yourself this morning as we read through this. If it's only the sealed who can withstand God's righteous judgment, am I one of them? Let's see if we fit the bill. Verse 13 to 17, this is a description of them. One of the elders asked me, who are these people in white robes and where did they come from? I said to him, sir, you know. Then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Now just mark that for a moment. Some people, good people, believe that this is a definite period of history sometime in the future that everything's going to go to hell and you know these are the people that came out of that tribulation. I believe that this tribulation is a description of human history and that if you ask people who have ever lived in the history of the world, they would probably paint a picture of life that makes good sense of the word tribulation. That is that ever since the fall of mankind, evidenced by Cain killing Abel and just about everything that's ever happened since, notwithstanding God's grace that breaks through the darkness constantly, but if we're honest about ourselves, even us in the decadent West experience life as tribulation and God never promises to spare us from it. Those who stand before the throne and are able to stand before the throne are those that have come out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, right, purpose, the purpose clause, this is why, because all of that is true of them, because they've experienced great tribulation and been spared God's just wrath, made pure and holy before him because of what the lamb Jesus did for them. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will not strike them nor will any scorching heat for the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life and wipe every tear. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
This is a beautiful picture of restored humanity. It's a beautiful picture of a sheep who is also a shepherd. A sheep who is also a shepherd. Jesus is the lamb who is slain and he is the good shepherd who leads and guides us not only through the valley of the shadow of death in this life, but through and into an an eternal, secure, abundant future. No more thirsting, no more hunger, no more affliction, every tear wiped from every eye. The question is, are you following the shepherd? Are you following the sheep who is also a shepherd? Are you following the sacrifice, the lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world? Are you following him now as he leads us, as a shepherd leads his own sheep? Are you following him through tribulation? If you're under any, like any illusions, if someone has told you at some point that becoming a Christian will mean that you are just going to be fine and live a life of beer and skittles and rainbows and unicorns, if you have ever been sold that message, then please disavow yourself of it now. We follow a slaughtered lamb. If they killed the master, why on earth would we think they would spare the servants? We follow Jesus through tribulation. We take up our crosses, which are instruments of execution. We prove our fidelity to him by remaining faithful in the midst of tribulation. Are you following the Lamb through this present tribulation? Can you continue to follow the Lamb when they tell you that it's cancer and it's terminal? Or when your children don't want to speak to you anymore? Or when they jack the interest rates again and you don't have any money left? Can you continue to follow the Lamb through tribulation just as He remained faithful through tribulation? For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising its shame. Do you know that joy that's been set before you? Paul says to the Romans, I consider these present sufferings to be incomparable, to be nothing compared to the weight of glory 
that awaits us, compared to that inheritance that has been promised to those who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit? Are you following the Lamb through tribulation to the other side, to the new heavens and the new earth? Are you trusting Him to protect you from God's righteous wrath, which will come? The day of the Lord that ought to make us tremble and yet ought to make us worship when we consider the fact that we've been saved. If you're here this morning and you have no idea whether you are sealed or not, whether you've been saved or not, the most pressing thing that you can attend to. Given what we know, that any moment God might determine to roll up history like a scroll and judge the earth with righteous wrath, that any moment like a thief in the light, night, Jesus could return and enact God's plan both for the destruction of the earth and for the redemption and restoration of the earth. For the judgment of humankind and for the salvation of those who have been sealed, given that we do not know the day or the hour, then the most pressing question you must ask yourself is, have I been sealed? Let me just remind you what you must do in order to be sealed. Give me a second while I find a passage here. I want to go to Ephesians chapter 2. All right, here's just a reality check for all of us who are not yet saved washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Paul says to people who have been saved, who have been sealed and set free, he explains what life was like for them before they were set free, before they were saved, before they were forgiven. He says, you were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh. He says we were by nature children under wrath. That's God's wrath. That's his righteous judgment. That's what's coming. And all of us, by nature, born into this state, by nature, under wrath. Two of the greatest words in the Bible. But God. But God, who is rich in mercy 
because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What must you do to be saved? He goes on, verse 8, you are saved by grace through faith and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast for we are his workmanship, his, his artwork created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Saved by grace through faith as a gift. If you're in any doubt about whether you are sealed whether you are forgiven, purified, washed clean in the blood of the Lamb, then for God's sake, receive the free gift of God, which is grace, mercy, forgiveness, abundant love. Receive. That's what you must do. You must receive by faith trusting in what Jesus did for you on the cross, dying the death you should die. Death that comes from righteous judgment, dying the death that you should die, having lived the life that you could never live, a perfect life. God now says, come, People of every nation, tribe, and tongue. All people, without distinction, without prejudice, all people are welcome to come and receive his grace. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I'm going to pray now for God's mercy and grace to be given to each one of us. Some of us, perhaps for the first time, others of us as a reminder of what we've already received. If you would like to receive the grace of God, his unmerited, unconditional acceptance, forgiveness, then please stand. Stand now as I pray. And by standing, you are willing. You are showing God by an act of the will that you want to receive his forgiveness. So do that now if you'd like to receive it, and I'll pray for his blessing on us. Father in heaven, you are a good God, a loving God, and you are also a holy God who must judge 
injustice. You must act to destroy wickedness. And we are all wicked. And so we are doomed. We thank you for your patience in holding back your righteous wrath so that we might repent, so that we might receive mercy, so that we might be sealed. Thank you for your patience. Father, please help us to tremble as we consider the great day of the Lord, the judgment of the earth. And please help us to run to you, a loving Father who delights to seal us. Lord Jesus, Lamb of God, we thank you for shedding your blood for us. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us and protects us from the judgment to come. And now, Lord, as we stand here, we acknowledge our need for cleansing, our need for your blood to wash us clean, our need to be marked on the forehead with the seal of your chosen ones. And so I pray now, Lord, on behalf of all of us here who are willing that you would seal us. Seal us with your promised Holy Spirit. Give to us that great inheritance of eternal life. Secure us by the blood of the Lamb and bring us into the fold of the sheep who is also a shepherd. For those of us in need of reassurance, Lord, please pour out your spirit of consolation and comfort. Remind us in our very bones that everything that needed to be done to save us has been done. It is finished. Help us now to live each day in the joy of the finished work of Christ. Help us to live in triumph even in the midst of tribulation. And please continue to teach us through this book how to live faithful lives even to the end. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. We're going to spend some time in reflection. Josh is going to play a song now for us uh, to give us some space. I love it. Uh, we didn't get to it from the reading, but um, just by way of introduction into next week, in the beginning of chapter 8, it says that there was half an hour of silence in heaven. And uh, I kind of wish that we could do that here right now, just have half an hour of silent reflection. We could spend a lot longer than that if we would just consider all that God has done for us. We're going to have a few minutes of it, though. It's time to contemplate.
next week, um, at the beginning of chapter 8, it tells us that seven trumpets were given to angels, and we're going to see what those seven trumpets mean next week. So feel free to read ahead, but just for now, look back on what we've heard. Contemplate what God has been saying to you, and uh, thank Him for His grace. shape the earth in your image of people made but we traded perfection the truth for a lie and your glory was veiled in shame but a promise made a blessing you gave to a people of your name for this broken world a savior foretold to bear all our grief and pain when the heavenly savior descended his throne all my sin on his shoulders to win our redemption he suffered and died for the sake of my guilt and shame oh the price he paid in taking my place so that death was overcome when the king of love burst forth from the grave proclaiming passed away I will gaze on my Savior's face when my heart is perfected and free from my sin I will rest in your glorious grace for the song we raise the works of our hands are in service of thousand tongues cry glory to God forever his praise will sing for the song we raise the works of our hands are in service of the king when a thousand tongues cry glory to God forever his praise so we'll sing forever his praise.